Today, we are coming to you from nonchalant Vermont. And Ray, I think you've got a couple questions that came into us recently. So you want to comment on those? Sure. I've got a couple of good questions from listeners that we have a great regard for. One is from a very close friend, uh, Nancy West, who's a retired high school teacher from Rockford, Illinois. And Nancy was wondering what we thought about listening skills being taught at the elementary level. And if we thought that was a good idea and and if that was the kind of thing we could support. What do you think, Bob? My reaction is absolutely. In fact, I think it should be taught at every level. Being at the University of Illinois for over 35 years, I was amazed that in our, what was originally called the speech communication department, they got renamed the communication department. In over 400 courses, we did not have one course on listening. Dozens of courses on public speaking. Dozens of courses on communicating from the speaking side, but nothing on listening. And I found that amazing. And so my argument would be not only at the elementary school level, but at the high school level and at the uh, university level, we ought to be teaching listening as a skill set. Bob, what age do you think you can start that education regarding listening? Well, that's a good question. Uh, My first reaction is I'm not sure, particularly if we're coming to at the school age, you know, kindergarten, five years. I think we could even start it then. It's more about beginning to encourage kids to ask questions. In fact, I've I've got a a grandson, uh, Evan. I'll give a shout out to him. Uh, Evan was real reluctant to engage in classes, particularly during this period of COVID and through the Zoom sessions. And so when I was chatting with him one time, I said to him, and I know this is flat out bribery. I said to him, uh, hey, Evan, I'll give you a buck for every contribution you make in your class. And he said, Grandpa, I I don't like speaking up in class. And I said, okay, I'll do this. If you'll just ask a question, I'll give you a buck. And so that's a contribution. The questions you ask and the better questions you ask, that's going to be great. So at the end of one week, he said, Grandpa, you owe me nine bucks. I said, great, great. I'm looking forward to paying off. So my point would be, those would be the kinds of engagements because we, and we're going to get into it today about Questions are clearly a form of listening behavior, not speaking behavior, that we could begin to get kids engaged in from the get-go. I mean, do you buy that or what? what Yeah, I do. And I think think the other one we talked about, eye contact, is important for kids because kids tend to be shy and they shy away from that. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of be a cultural thing. You and I have talked about that, the different cultures who view eye contact in interpersonal communication differently. But here in the States... Uh, we know that if you're not making good eye contact, people don't see you as listening. Mm-hmm. So that's something that can be taught. I remember a situation with Rebecca and I used to teach the kids when they were very young that uh, if we were talking, if I was talking to them, they had to look at me. I would not accept them looking away. And so I repeatedly gave them the warning, I need to see your eyes. And uh, one day we were in conversation, Rebecca was talking with me, and I was thinking of something else and doing something else. And she said, Ray, husband, I want to see your face, which was her way of saying, you're not making eye contact. Let's get with it. That can be taught very early. But you're right. I think it's it's a bit of a shame that we don't insert that skill set, learning for that skill set early for kids mm-hmm. so they can become better communicators both at home and at school. A second question we got, Bob, was from another. Well, wait, we should probably tell Nancy then she ought to design the curriculum that builds in listening and make sure that her uh, former school is uh, using it. Well, I'm glad you told her what to do. I know Nancy Wolf that I would never presume to tell Nance what to do. 
So Nancy, you heard it from Bob. A second question we got was from a good friend, Grace Rowley Whalen from Indiana. And uh, she's a delightfully innovative mom of two. And she asked the question, uh, is silence a form of communication? What's your view of that, Bob? Well, I think the unequivocal answer is absolutely. I mean, silence says all kinds of things. And I think one of the interesting perspectives is that you and I kind of approach silence a little differently. I see silence as potentially problematic in leadership situations and in group situations. When the leader chooses to be silent for prolonged periods of time, it causes the group to begin to think, what's going on? What's he thinking? Uh, What's she thinking? Am I doing something wrong? Am I saying something wrong? Because the silence is communicating very loudly to some of the people in the group. This is not, whatever I'm saying is not acceptable. Otherwise, he or she would be commenting on it. Now, you kind of took a different approach with silence and and talked about the really positive uh, way silence can communicate. Well, I've always thought silence can be a helpful space in which people can collect themselves if there's something going on that's very hard for them, very emotional. I've seen it as a space that people can organize their thoughts. So I think of silence as being an important gift that you give as a listener to the person speaking that they can use to their benefit. But my my view of interpersonal communication, not so much group communication, but interpersonal communication, is that your goal as a listener is to help the speaker tell their story. And if silence can do that, momentary silence can do that, then I think you have to get comfortable with silence. And I would say that's the real issue. For most people, silence is a scary thing, and they're uncertain of what it means. I, I was sharing with you that as a former teacher, I saw a study done at the University of Michigan about teachers and how comfortable they are with silence. And so the study found out what was the average length of time a teacher would wait in silence for they broke the silence of their own question. They asked some question to the class and then be silent until they said something like, okay, don't everyone answer at once. Okay, didn't any of you do your homework? And then they break the silence. And the average length of time that a teacher would wait was 1.9 seconds. Wow. And if the classroom were slower, or she asked the question of a particular student, and that student was not a superior student, the time went down, Mm. it was reduced. So kids who were less sharp in class were given less time to formulate an answer to what might be a very complicated question. Anyway, I think of silence as being an important part of communication, and the real Critical part is how comfortable you can be with it. And if you're uncomfortable, and if you're uncomfortable, that's your problem. It's a it's a notion that yes, silence is a very important communication tool device, and it it really kind of speaks to how comfortable are you with it, and are you using it in the right way? Yep. Thanks, Grace, for that question. Now, where we finished uh, last episode were skills related to listening, and we talked about. Eye contact being number one. We talked about nodding being one. One that uh, got brought up also in a question was nonverbal behavior and what role that plays in communication. And so we might talk just a minute real quickly before we head into questions as a primary behavior. What's your view of nonverbal? From the research, there are two that tend to be most interesting to me. One is that nonverbally, the one behavior that communicates that I'm listening to you is leaning in slightly in a comfortable way. Leaning back shows disinterest, even though you may not be disinterested. 
but you can actually communicate to another person, I really am interested in what you're having to say by simply leaning in slightly. And then the other one is social distance zones and recognizing that there are these these distances we maintain in our different cultures that really communicate different things and what's acceptable in a certain distance zone. So based on the research I've seen, 18 inches to three feet is called an intimate distance zone. We expect most of our communication inside that distance zone to be quite intimate. So when people lean in and whisper, when people are close to one another, when people uh, get close to one another, we interpret that in our culture as intimate. In fact, I think I was sharing with you that one of the teasing things we say is when we walk into a restaurant and we see two people sitting on the same side of the booth and there's no one sitting opposite of them, uh, what do we think? And what we think is, boy, those people probably aren't married. (laughs) Probably not. not. Those are romantic people. My uh, suggestion with regard to uh, informal or nonverbal informal behavior, one tip I got that I think is very useful is if someone comes to you, in your space, and let's say they're very angry, let's say they're emotional, they're standing, you encourage them to sit, please take a seat. Or if they don't, you stand up. But no time do you want to be dealing with people who are in an emotionally frenetic place at a different level in terms of height, Uh, which is why when you deal with children, it's always good that you kneel down and talk with them eye to eye, face to face. You want to be at the same level. You want to be on the same level with people. And that's an important nonverbal behavior. If you sit and someone stands there talking down to you, and and you want to be talking to each other, not up or down. That's a great observation. It's almost like it's in that category of a tip. Here are things that you need to think about doing as you're out there communicating with others. And one other I would throw in that same group is If you're in a seating arrangement, let's say you're seated, uh, talking one-on-one or even in a group, and you want to communicate the most positive, cooperative stance you can in terms of this conversation is about being cooperative. It's about coordinating. It's about not being adversarial. What's the best seating arrangement? Surprisingly, a lot of people miss this one, but it's actually sitting at 90-degree angles from each other. So if you've got a desk, you sit off the corner of the desk. You don't sit across from one another. In fact, in our culture, sitting across the table is the most adversarial position one can take. That is something that we have researched. Sitting across at 90 degree angles is the best way to sit when you're trying to say, I want to cooperate with you. Well, I think that uh, we've uh, done our listeners a good service by being willing to try to address things they bring up. And I think that that's a great way to engage and make sure we're getting the most out to the people who are tuning in. But we probably need to get on to the listening behavior related to questions, because that is, in fact, in a conversational sense, probably one of the most powerful tools you have to both be perceived as a good listener, effective listener, and be an effective shaper of the conversation, keep the conversation moving. So last time we talked about three types of questions, closed questions, open-ended questions, and clarifying questions. You have some researchable ideas on the ratio of questions, comments that you share with me often. I like to hear those. And I think okay. uh, I guess I'd want to ask the listeners, particularly those who are in organizational settings, leaders, people who are having to work with others or lead others, what do you think ought to be the ratio of the number of questions you ask to the number of statements you make in a conversation? It can be a one-on-one conversation. It can be a group conversation. But to think specifically about what's the ratio? How many questions should I ask 
compared to how many statements I should make. So let them think about that for a minute. And then what I would point out is that those who work on leadership say, and it has been researched, that that ratio ought to be two questions for every one statement. So to think about that, what's really being proposed here is that when you're in a group setting, the ideal as a leader is for you to be asking two questions for every one statement you make. Now, my experience in coaching and working in organizational settings is that is so far from reality for most leaders. Most leaders clearly make more statements than they ask questions. In fact, I was giving you an example earlier of a dean of a, at a major university that I work with who I was asked to work with them because they were being remarkably successful in turning a major college around in that university. But in the process, they had alienated some folks with how they were going about doing it. And so one of the things that I was working on was to getting this dean to be more of an effective listener in working with her top team. And so what I did is I said, let's just, you meet with your your department heads and I will just sit in and I will just simply count the number of times you ask a question compared to the number of times you make a statement. And then you and I can have lunch together afterwards and we can talk about it. And that's exactly what we did. And when we went out to lunch, I said, so how'd you think you did? Uh, How'd you feel about it? She said, I felt very good. I felt like I was really on top of it. Felt like I I asked a lot of questions. Felt like I really, it really made a difference in the conversation. And I said, well, uh, you actually asked four questions and you made 18 statements. And so that was indicative of what I've discovered is that no matter how good we think we are at asking questions, we tend not to think in questions. We tend to think in answers. We tend to think in statements. So it's going to take some real redoing in order to make that one work. I think think what you're pointing out is that asking questions is a commitment to a discipline. Mm -hmm. It It takes personal discipline to be in a conversation and choose to ask questions rather than engage in an exchange, almost a debate with statements opposing each other. To choose to drop out of that pattern and into a, I'm going to ask questions to both clarify and move the conversation so it becomes productive, that's work, is in keeping with our concept that active listening, effective listening is serious work. And that's part of the work. It is real real work. Boy, I can't believe it, Ray, but we're at it again. We're pushing uh, our time limit. And so for this session, I think it might be valuable for us just simply to add the additional behaviors that we think are critical when we think of people being effective listeners. We've already spoken to, at least initially, the whole notion of asking questions. And I think we've got more that we want to say there. Right. But I would say that in my mind, the three most critical behaviors that a person could work on, verbal behaviors, that is, that a person could work on in terms of wanting to communicate, I'm wanting to listen to you, is asking clarifying questions. The second one is paraphrasing. And the third one is summarizing. And I would distinguish summarizing from paraphrasing is to say, it's amazing in the number of conversations we're involved in that we go too long before someone simply says, so what is it? Where have we gotten to? What are we talking about? What's our thinking to date? And in my mind, that's where a great summary comes in, where I just simply say, here's what I've heard us saying over the last five minutes. So that'd be a summary. And then you had a great observation about paraphrasing or restating. Okay, yes. Uh, When I was getting uh, one of my degrees, and this one was at the University of Michigan, we were in a uh, Rogerian counseling class in which you were required to use the 
Rogers method, which was a, you, you only asked questions or you only restrained, restated, but you did not presume to give opinion. And in the class was a Marine sergeant who had every role play situation that he got into trying to use the Rogerian method. He would end up absolutely being directive and judging people and telling them what they must do and should do. And finally, the instructor said, look, you have one more role play. If in this role play, you don't choose to only use restatement and tell the client what they've told you, you'll never see the light of day with regard to your degree. (laughs) So the class of 30 watched this sergeant role play with one of the class members, and he was just in agony as the five-minute session went on. But he did, in fact, only restate, but he restated what the client was saying through gritted teeth the entire time because it was so foreign to him, so different. He managed to do it with great resistance and reluctance and managed to pass the class, but just by the skin of his teeth, because he was willing to discipline himself to hold back on the comments, questions, debate. I was going to say, and that's the kind of the point you raised it earlier is discipline. And back to your notion, this takes real work. People may think listening is just an easy activity, but it isn't. And it takes real work. It certainly does. And in that light, I'd like to give uh, everyone who's listening a homework assignment. I'd like them to test this principle oh, I out. Bet they love that. Yeah. I mean, we're doing the work now. You could do a little bit of work if you're listening. You That's and, right. and the work is this. I want you to twice a week for five minutes, make a commitment to be in a conversation using only effective listening behavior. So I don't think that's too much. I'm saying twice a week and only for five minutes. Don't go over five minutes, but discipline yourself to use the kind of listening behaviors that you and I have been suggesting and to get a feel for what the real work is. Because until you can become comfortable doing that kind of work, listening and strategic communication is just a distant possibility. And those behaviors are eye contact, asking clarifying questions, paraphrasing or restating, summarizing. Can you think of others that we've talked about that? Yes. Nodding. Yeah. Yes. And then some of the nonverbals we talked about, distance and... Don't stand up if they're sitting down. Don't let them stand up if you're sitting down. Exactly. 